I need to do all these changes and lump them into one big pull request. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Why can't we just have something where we store this information in a single place and have the platforms just consume and use that? Welcome to the DevTools FM podcast. This is a podcast about developer tools and the people who make them. I'm Andrew, and this is my co-host, Justin. Hey, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking to people who work in a part of the stack you might not have that much experience in. When building a design system for multiple platforms, it becomes super apparent that a solution to store the base values is needed. And it's a harder problem than you might think. Would you guys like to introduce yourselves? I'm Kelly Harrop, and I am a senior UX engineer at Intuit, and I work on our core design system team managing our design data as for my day-to-day. And I also help designers and developers generate artifacts and help teams collaborate together. Cool. And I'm Danny Banks. I'm a design technologist at Amazon. Currently, I am in the third-party seller organization at Amazon. I'm working on the mobile app that third-party sellers use to sell stuff on Amazon. As part of that, I also created two open-source libraries, Style Dictionary and Sketch Constructor, so also maintaining those. I'm about to change jobs, but it's not official yet, so that will be coming out soon in the next couple weeks. So I'll let you know. Yeah, it seems to be a symptom of quarantine that people like to leave their jobs. So I I won't be leaving Amazon, though. So I'll be staying at Amazon, just changing teams within there. And so I think something that's interesting about both of the two of you that our other guests haven't shared so far is that you're both design technologists by trade and not computer scientists. How do you end up in a role like that? I've I've always been interested. I've always I, like technically I was hired as a UX designer at Amazon and then I transferred over to being a design technologist just because I was doing a lot of like front end code um, and actually coding a lot of the stuff that I was designing so it just always fit I've always really wanted to be building the things that I was designing and really wanted to like craft the actual things that users were seeing, you know, because users don't see a sketch file or a Figma file. They see HTML and CSS or Objective-C and Java. So that's really why I like gravitated toward the design technologist, design engineer position. So my background's a little similar to Danny's. I started out in design and my first full-time job I, I was a designer, and then after I completed my first design task, they were like, so you're going to code this, right? And I went, um, sure. So <laughs> a lot of late nights Googling things. I did not have a formal background in <laughs> learning any of this, so lots of YouTube and Stack Overflow and seeing a lot of well actuallys <laughs> helped me form, I guess, my basis of best practices and learning. I like shame-driven development. It's how I learn. Lots of comments in PRs. And I just, I ended up falling in love with front end and building cool stuff and just finding out lots of different ways to do things and figuring or trying to figure out which one is the most acceptable, which changes year to year. I have a question about this role. I've, I've worked with some designers in the past who I think would probably be better described as this role of design technologists who were pretty multifaceted and can do a lot of things. I'm just curious from your sort of day-to-day work and especially as you're getting into broadening from just doing designs to actually building things have the tools that you've run across been helpful or has it just made it harder because um i'll frame this with a little context sometimes in one of my previous jobs i would show really technical people on my design team hey here's these react components and they're like wow what is even going on here but they could sit down with a code pen and build out like a like pixel perfect, fully responsive, like HTML, CSS, and even like with some behavioral stuff, but just handcrafted. And, and so I'm just curious about the state of tooling and, and how that makes design easier or harder as you approach it. So I love Figma 
and how it is super collaborative. There's less of that handoff period and you don't have to redline anything. There are more plugins and tooling that gets added almost, I feel, every week that lets you actually use coded components inside of these design tools. And over time, I've seen just a lot of different tools that are doing this these days. You know, there's like Framer X, I think does like a really good job of this because you are actually pulling in your components. Lots of different tools, especially integrations with Storybook have also been really helpful. And I, I love the transparency around just making sure everyone can use the same terminology and understand if a design changes, how does that impact development and having that kind of flow, I think has been great. And I think that's the direction that it's less of a, here's everything perfect and then here go coded. And it's more of a joint effort so that it's not as, you know, hopefully it's not as destructive to change things as you iterate and try things out. Yeah, I think like we're going in a really good direction as an industry. I think for me, what's really interesting to see and what's really promising to see is getting developer tools more designer friendly versus the other way around. So like more kind of like storybook things. Was it the like playroom where you can like graphically build with rack components? like those type of um, like tools so that it's rather than Figma trying to like export something, the, the designer and the developer are working in the same space, but just different views of it. And so one of the things that I've been trying to push like in my organization is getting out of a design tool as quickly as possible. There are some cases where a designer can just tell me, hey, I want a page and it's going to have a banner and then a text input and then a button. And we don't need a design review. We don't need to create anything in Figma or Sketch. We can just start building that and then iterating on the actual like production code components. And so getting to like getting to code as fast as possible. And rather than I think Gina said it like instead of bridging the gap, just removing the gap between design and development. So like those type of uh, like integrations and tools, I think are really exciting. I think that the a good future for designer developer interfacing and stuff like that. Yeah. I view like your jobs as design technologists, like you saw that, Hey, I could be a better designer by designing closer to the platform I'm actually delivering. And a lot of these developer tools are making that same logical jump that like with Figma, what you're designing, you're designing for a web target basically. So it makes it very easy to translate it from one to two. Whereas if you're like in Sketchland, things it's kind of like a crazy Photoshop and it's like, sure, you, you are kind of designing for web, but it doesn't hold your hand in that way. And it's really exciting to see tooling go that way. Yep, definitely. Definitely. So that translates pretty well into the next topic. Since you guys were more about designing for your platform, it's almost natural that making your own tools is the next step after that. You, you already wanted to own more of the stack. What's a tool or two <laughs> more? What? drove you to create style dictionary or even approach the concept of design tokens? Yeah, it's funny. Back when the mobile application that I was working on at Amazon was first started, it was a very small team, like five or six people, very scrappy even for Amazon standards. And I just remember I was designing a lot of stuff. It was before we like componentized our whole like application. And there were just times when I was designing things, but also playing around in a little bit of the Android and iOS code bases. And there were times when I would see like, okay, I just want to change like the font color. And I would figure out, okay, to do that, I need to change this Objective-C file, this other Objective-C file, this like plist file, this Java file, this Android resource file. I need to do all these changes and lump them into one big pull request. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Why can't we just have something where we store this information in a single place and have the platforms just consume and use that? And so that's the, the, I guess, genesis of Style Dictionary was really solving that problem. And it was, I started it from solving it for our team, but in a somewhat generic way. So like I, we had first intersourced it, basically. We built it. It was available to any team at Amazon to use if they wanted to. And then as I was evangelizing it within Amazon, doing internal like conferences and stuff like that, my now co-maintainer basically approached me and said, this would make an awesome open source project. So let's try to open source it. 
and we spent a couple months and got it out in the public and the rest is history. Uh, so while you were making it, were there like any other alternatives that were available at the time? Like, why did you choose to make your own in this case? Hmm. Not to my knowledge. It's actually kind of interesting. Like Theo and Style Dictionary were both probably being written around the same time. Theo came out like open source before Style Dictionary did, but like they were both, I would assume, being worked on around the same time, like around 2015, 2016. I think we open sourced Style Dictionary like end of 2017, and Theo came out like beginning of 2017 as open source or something, but it, it was like roughly around the same time. So there wasn't like at least to my knowledge, any other thing that solved that. And, and it's actually interesting, like we'd both come up with similar like paradigms, like transforms and formats, and we even called them both transforms and formats, which is kind of weird and creepy. I don't know how that happened, but it did. So, yeah, so there wasn't any really anything that I think did exactly what I wanted it to do. There were probably like very specific things of going from one language to another or doing like a very kind of narrow integration but i saw it and the creators of theo also saw it as more of a generic problem that wouldn't be solved by just you know doing one specific integration and it needed to be more flexible to account for a swift and objective c and java and kotlin and everything else that you know could be imaginable so that's the main thing style dictionary solves right is producing all these tokens in a very consumable format how did you arrive at those implementations? Because as you said yourself, you're a design technologist, not a computer scientist by trade. So knowing the right way to format your tokens for iOS versus Android, that's a lot of like platform specific knowledge. How did you arrive at that knowledge? I would say I, I skirted that issue because I, <laughs> I built it in a way knowing that I wouldn't be an iOS expert or an Android expert or even a web expert and building style dictionary in a way where a consumer user of it can define how they want to transform and format the tokens for their application. They will know my Android application looks like this. And so I need my tokens to be consumed in this way. And my iOS application looks like this and needs to be consumed in this way. So while Style Dictionary has built in, we have a couple here, here's an Objective C static singleton class format. And here's a Swift, but the intention was always that the teams using it would define their own formats for how they wanted to consume it because A, again, I'm not an iOS expert or an Android expert. And B, even if I was like my version of the best way to consume design tokens in an iOS environment is not necessarily the only way. And we didn't want to like prescribe this is how tokens should work on iOS. And so we really wanted to build it as like more of a platform that was meant to be extended and customized versus a highly opinionated, this is how the integration works type deal, which I think is it's a double-edged sword in that it opens up a lot of applications to use it, but it is more difficult to get onboarded than something that's like, this is exactly how you define your colors and this is how you consume them on iOS because there's no like canonical way necessarily to do that with Style Dictionary. What has what your experience with that been? Has Style Dictionary been flexible enough to meet design system needs? One of the things that we really tried to build into it, and when people ask me, like, oh, how would I, how would you do this thing? And I always say, let's work backwards from what you want to be, like, what you want the code to look like. Do you want some CSS custom properties? Do you want some CSS helper classes? Do you want a JavaScript object? Let's work backwards from there. And then we can create from that. A lot of people will ask me, am I doing something? Like, am I doing this right? Is my setup right? And generally I'll say, there's no like right or wrong way. If it works for you, then it's the right way. And I've learned a lot of things from just talking to Kelly's team. There's a lot of stuff that I didn't know you could do with Style Dictionary that actually Kelly's team taught me and other teams that I've met as well. And so it's been really interesting to see all of the different ways that you can integrate and build cool stuff on top of it, because there's a lot of stuff that like I'm learning from other people about how to do you know, cool stuff with Style Dictionary and actually my team's kind of implementation of it for our application 
is very simplistic in comparison to like Intuit and other companies that use Style Dictionary that have these crazy setups that do all this cool stuff. Our setup is very simple and sad in comparison. Yeah, I helped contribute to Intuit's usage of Style Dictionary, and we definitely have some code going on there. <laughs> like we're we're generating CJS, ESM types. Like we're we're doing it all. That was qu- quite a fun task to to get working right. I have a somewhat of a related question on that notion of bringing it closer to where developers are. One of the challenges that a lot of organizations have when building design systems and and specking out things like design tokens is that you ultimately need product engineers on product teams to be implementing these in the product interfaces. Cause if they're not, it doesn't really help you a whole lot. Uh, so maybe it's a two part. Uh, one has this tooling helped with adoption. Do you have any clear signs of that? And two, have either of y'all had to explore actually getting some sort of like measurement or metric about adoption of this tooling? Does it like make that any easier? I think it has made kind of adoption of using design tokens, I think, easier. It was a a journey to get there. And like what I did with my internal team is I like kickstarted that process. And like when I first built Cell Dictionary and first built our tokens, I did the initial, okay, I'm just going to do a find and replace this hex value to this token and this other hex value to this token and this size to this token. And then getting that initial piece and the whole application wasn't on design tokens in one big commit, but getting it in there allowed developers to start seeing, oh, like we're using this, it's my in Objective-C, we're actually using macros, which is probably like really gross and weird, but it works. Um, and so once like developers started saying like, oh, for you know, this color, I just have this you know, Objective-C macro. And for this size, I have this other macro. And now when I'm looking at pull requests, I'm seeing you know developers using those things and being able to see that adoption just kind of through I guess, osmosis of learning. No, I don't need to define like this hex value or this size when I'm designing my component or my interface. For the second part of the question, like in terms of having metrics for the adoption or kind of when tokens are being used, that's not something we've explored yet. We are like, our team is actually going to be going through a rebrand this year. So we'll actually have a good kind of metric slash stress test of, are we using tokens to the best extent? Because when we do this refresh, if there are certain things that aren't using the tokens, then we'll need to make them use the tokens or else they'll fall out of sync. All right. So before we get too much further into it, why don't we take a step back a little bit and just Talk about what a design token is and why someone who's interested in dev tools might care. I like to think of a design token in kind of two ways. There's design tokens as like a methodology and design tokens as an implementation. So you could be using design tokens without using design token framework like style dictionary or Theo. You could just be using CSS custom properties or SAS variables or Android resources. And as a methodology, it's about systematizing your design decisions so that rather than thinking about each, styling each component in isolation, you're thinking about the whole system and creating relationships between colors and sizes and icons and fonts so that when you want to support dark mode or when you want to change your branding or enable multiple themes, you can make these changes in a way that makes sense and is reflective in the system. And so you can do that without using a framework or doing anything kind of cross-platform or multi-platform. And then design tokens as an implementation is really that like multi-platform piece. It's getting those design decisions in a platform agnostic format so that you can then kind of output them to each platform and language and use them in your applications across different platforms and languages, however you want to consume them. And design tokens generally are thought of as colors, font sizes, paddings, borders, but really they could be a lot more than that. They could be SVGs that use that reference design tokens within them. They could be UI strings with localization. They could be binary files like font files, shadows, animation, basically anything that you could think of to use or style in your design system could probably be a design token. 
Yeah, to add on to that, I love that design tokens offer a way to provide constraints so you don't have to guess what's available. They just come naturally out of the box. And one of my favorite applications is using utility CSS. And I, I just, I, I, I love Tailwind. I love having a preset defined list of things that I can reference. I don't have to think about it. It's already established and I, I can use either semantic tokens that describe the relationship. And that's something big that I think a lot of companies and teams really need to put more focus and establish what those are because anyone can just say, all right, I want this thing to be blue, but what does blue mean in your system? When should we use that versus when shouldn't we use that? And you see a lot of products these days and you see UI elements and you're going, why is that one purple? And, and why is that green? And why is that blue? And if you don't have that structure in place, if you're not taking the time to assign the, the meaning behind your design tokens, you just run into the wild west of these applications. And that's actually something that our team currently is looking at is how do we map those things more strategically so that an end user, they don't even have to think about it. They, they know the usage, they assign the usage, and then all of the colors and the typography and the spacing that comes for free. And I think that lets teams accelerate their work a lot more and work more efficiently. Yeah, you might not know it when you start out, but having a set of sizes really helps accelerate you. Like just coming up with, oh, what's a four spacing for us? That takes time. And then the amount of times that you repeat that little bit of code throughout your code base is going to make design refreshes a nightmare. Kelly, in your mind, has having design tokens as a first class citizen in the design system helped with updating designs, with keeping Intuit's products looking fresh? Yeah, it's nice to have it all centralized in one place. One thing that is not fixed by design tokens, because a lot of people just assume, oh, you're using design tokens, everything's easy. The implementation part gets really tricky because let's say I have a token out of the box. There's no way to know how that's being leveraged. Like, I don't know if someone's using that spacing token to do something wild and <laughs> they could be... Uh, you laugh, but I've, I've seen some really creative usage. You're like, who cares about the name? I just want the value. So they just plug in any token that matches that value. And then we go to update the value later on. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why did it change? I'm like, well, well, you're using the token. <laughs> like you, you use the token for the purpose, not the end value. And what I think our next big assignment for tokens is figuring out that mapping and, and seeing how they're being applied. Because if we're going to be updating these design tokens to impact lots of folks, we need to have a visual way to ensure that we're not just blowing people's components up because one person's bottom padding is another person's bottom margin and things <laughs> <laughs> or a top margin even. And that's even worse. That's something that we're hoping to uh, accomplished through tooling. And it's pretty exciting. Like I'd love to get to a place where when, if we were going to update something, there's a quick visual way to just double check and make sure everything works across multiple repos, products, platforms. And I think that will be fantastic. Yeah. On my own personal design tokens journey, I first thought that that layer of indirection wasn't all that necessary, but as time goes on and you look towards the future, you really do realize that you need that like second layer that lives on top of your base token values. Otherwise, your reds aren't going to be red someday. <laughs> <laughs> There's always an intersection here that I like to think about. It's just basically this conceptual notion of codifying the language that we use to talk about something. So as you're describing that, like you want to use a thing for its context, not for its value. So maybe your design tokens has, I'll go to a classic example, like this notion of a primary color, which is be used on primary button or interaction. And it's, it's easy to know when to pull that in. But it's one of those reinforcing things when you're talking about like not just what is the color, but what is the function of a thing that is often a conversation that can get lost between design and engineering, especially if there's a big gap. Because if you have like this ivory tower design, the same thing that happens with the ivory tower, like, 
architecture is like you get a design and you just implement it to what it looks like but like semantically the context is all gone and it's not really right yeah and even if you do have that kind of like nice semantic layer like color background primary color font primary I mean, this is actually just bringing up, I was looking at a pull request like even last week where there was you know, some iOS change that was like setting the label color of a UI label and it was setting it to color border primary. And I was just like, that's the text color and you're setting it to color border primary. And it's like, yeah, but it's the same color. It's like, but if we were to change that, like, why don't you use color font primary? And it's like, oh, I guess I could use that and change it. But it, it is still, even if you do have that layer, it's still, I think, a mindset change from implementing interfaces in a way of like, okay, I need to make this this color and this this size, and that abstracting those decisions away. I think it's still kind of a mind shift change that a lot of people still need to make. And it it, it will take some time to get there for sure. Yeah, it's another place where our tools are definitely helping us. Like the big selling point for me on Figma is the ability to create a design system in Figma and have all of your tokens easily consumable while you're designing. Because if a designer can still just go off and pick whatever blue they want for their button, like there's still going to be a lot of friction between design and developer. I think one of my favorite things, like in Slack, when people ask, hey, I noticed this thing is green. How do I make it pink? And a lot of it is like, is framed as how do I just get this to match instead of the question of, hey, maybe this doesn't follow our system and, and maybe this shouldn't be this different color. And I think just the understanding of what, what should be configurable versus what, you know, is set by the system, I think is not really explicit sometimes. And with using tokens, I think that could help because you are defining what's available in those choices versus just an open-ended style object <laughs> overriding the style. Yeah, it's systematizing all of the decisions. Like, do you want to change the button color for all of the buttons across all of the platforms? Do you want it? Do you want the button to be configurable so that you can override the button color in your page? Like, what's the context there? Or maybe, do you want to change the brand color from blue to pink? And that has other changes as well. They'll change the link color. They'll change other colors as well. Like, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? And what part of the system do you want to change or have an effect on? Design Tokens doesn't necessarily just solve that, but I think it brings the conversation up a little bit so that it's easier to have those conversations at that level. I wonder if the like conceptual notion of a design system as a thing is still trying to ultimately ramp up to this, like where it's just easier to do the right thing, to pick the right constraint. Cause like we tokens by themselves are relatively simple to implement, but hard to use in all your products. And then you're both saying you can easily pick the wrong thing. Like there's nothing stopping you, but if you go up a level of abstraction, you say, now we're just going to give you a primary button instead of the primary color and it's token. And it, there's less control that you have over that, but it's like more together. I'm just curious from the design perspective and you're thinking about systems and like the tools that you provide, I don't know, how do you make the right call on what constraints should be there or what shouldn't be there? That seems like a hard problem. Yeah, it's a very hard problem. There's no like right answer objectively across the board for every company. I think one of the things that I have tried to do like within like my team and organization is I'll never say no to anything, but I will frame it as you could go off and build this new banner component. It'll probably take you, you know, eight dev weeks to build and consume and use. Or you could use our current banner component, which looks like this and is like slightly different, which would take a week to build. Or we can have the discussion to change the banner component so that it would affect all banners. That would take two or three weeks. And so it's not framing it as like, like I don't want to say anything is right or wrong, but I want to give the all the options that are available 
And then hopefully, if we've you know built this system in a good way, the right way will come about. Maybe it is the right decision for them to build their own banner and spend eight weeks because they have a very you know specific marketing need or something. Maybe the right decision isn't to do that, but it's not. I, I don't want to make that decision for any team, so I'm only there to help and help understand the the options and constraints. I really like that banner example because it reminds me of something that we worked on. Um, add into it. And it goes back to how composable are your components and how customizable, what level of chaos and destruction is your, like your tolerance level, honestly, when you're making these decisions, because you can definitely put in a lot of constraints and, and some of it has to do with how strict is the design to dev connection. Some of that I've seen before where a design has two sizes for a component. So does that mean a dev can put any size? Is it constrained to those two sizes? And I see a, a lot of that. It's funny, different teams have different philosophies on how strict to make it. And then you have some folks like like me, I'm like, let's just, just let them have whatever. It's fine. <laughs> make everything a child. It's okay. That's what context is for. No, and, and understanding everyone's philosophy on that really helps take the edge off of making these decisions. Because if you understand, okay, this person really wants to make sure that nothing breaks. Okay, this person wants to make sure that developers have flexibility. And it's it's interesting to see all those opinions come together to form essentially your component API. And I've found we're actually in the process now of really documenting those decisions and showing why we came to the decisions we make so that as a product developer, they may not realize all the implications. And if they see that context, it's suddenly not, oh, why did they do it this way? Don't they know that they could have uh, made this uh, a prop instead of a named expert or things like that? And what's interesting is when you document it, there's that empathy. It's like, oh, they did think of that. Oh, I see like why they went in this direction. So you can actually have a constructive conversation instead of coming in with your own kind of you know, I at my old company, we did this way, so we should do it this other way. And so I, I love just document. I love documentation. I love I'm a sucker for it. I love MDX. Just being able to write out my thoughts as, as crazy as they can be and just get just get those thoughts out there. Because even if they're wrong, I want to be able to at least talk about it because I just I love being able to explore all these different solutions together and coming up with something where everyone feels like their voice is heard. I've learned a lot. I know Andrew like taught me a lot about the values of tree shaking. I think every conversation I have, at least one tree is shaken. And yeah, I love the ability to think through customization and constraints, I think is really a cool topic. I think that really ties back to your idea of shame-driven development. It's like, Put, put the PR up. Let me get the comments. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Like that helps you grow as a developer immensely. Or you just cry. I hope it's not shame. though. <laughs> 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 yeah, not real shame. Just like helpful encouragement. Okay, Kelly. So as a person central to the design systems effort at Intuit, what are some of the tools that you and your team have helped build out and deliver to help consuming design tokens as cool as the problem they solve. Yeah. So when we were first creating design tokens and this whole design data system, it was all JSON. <laughs> and we tried having designers get all set up and clone the repo and pull it down and run yarn and yarn build. Didn't work. <laughs> I think I scared some of them off and then some of them were just they were like, I'm interested, but you know, maybe later. And so that didn't work. So I'm like, okay, well, we tried that. What, what else we got? So we already used Storybook for our component demos. And so our designers, they love Storybook. And I saw, okay, well, if they like Storybook, then we could maybe leverage that to display our design tokens. And. So we, we created our own token storybook and a lot of thought went into what's the best way to display it? What do people need to know and see? And, and what can we leverage from our existing plugins that we've already built? 
that displays our customizations. So we built a custom storybook. Users can swap the product, they can swap dark mode, light mode, they can see those values, they can copy and paste. One of our limitations currently is that only the formats only show up in JavaScript. And we want to be able to show the variable names in the other platforms because on Android, you have XML and it's like with underscores and then you have other formats. So that's where we want to get to, but I'm storybook fangirl. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I really like the way that you can use the add-ons to just make it work for your use case. And in addition to storybook, we also have this awesome VS code extension that Andrew wrote. And it's amazing because in VS code, you can see a preview, a visual preview of the token data. So as you're filling out and you're doing your, you're on your, you're doing your CSS and you're like, Hey, I want to use a spatial value. So you just start typing in and then you see all the space, like the spacings. It's amazing. There's light mode, dark mode values for hex values. It's really cool. And when I show people this, they're just like, I'm excited about design tokens. And so it's been a great learning tool to show people that it's not just that we have these design tokens. It's like we're getting people excited about using them in their day to day. So thank you, Andrew. <laughs> that wasn't a leading question at all. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny you mentioned designers like not wanting to learn JSON and stuff like that. I remember when I was first showing designers in my organization, I was like, oh, here's a JSON file with some colors, and here's what happens if you add something. And the designers are just like, I, I don't want to learn JSON. I don't know what that means. I, I don't want to do that. I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. And then, so yeah, so I think design tokens, like, it's really the integrations that I think make it click for people. So like on the dev side, like the integrations into Android and iOS and web, but also like yeah, integrations into like VS code or storybook where you can see like where that data and where those decisions come out, I think is where it starts to really click for people and get people really excited about design tokens. Yeah, we got surprisingly far on our teaching designers Git journey. Like people were actually making pull requests but then there was a merge conflict and it all came crumbling down. <laughs> <laughs> merge conflicts are hard, man. Like, <laughs> they are. And I didn't want to teach a designer how to resolve one. Yeah. Yeah, but now there's like a button that GitHub added that lets you rebase, which is pretty yeah. neat. Mess it up right on the web. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Make it easy for everybody. Yeah. Back earlier in my career, I helped a team design a theme system at the time. This is like before I had the conceptual understanding of like design system, maybe 2015, 2016. And, and we built out this really complex workflow in SAS where it was like a bunch of nested SAS objects with like theme values and everything. So the, the conceptual model works the same, but I have so much regret for what I did to those poor, poor designers. <laughs> like, because <laughs> they ended up working in these like theme files and it was it was not not great and i am so sorry <laughs> anybody's out there <laughs> listening to this i'm so sorry <laughs> kelly when i was leaving into it i heard whispers of a figma plugin for the design mm -hmm. tokens has that gone anywhere yes we hired uh so i'm a senior ex engineer and we have a team of VX engineers. We have two folks that joined us. And so one of them is focusing on Figma plugins. And part of that is a plugin related to design data. So that's, that's, it's been really interesting to see how the different ways that we format our tokens can manifest its way into Figma. And a lot of that. It's not just apply the token as a style. That's just the first hurdle. <laughs> the, the bigger hurdle is understanding how designers are working, whether it's a system designer or product designer. Are they breaking apart the components? How do, how do they work with variants? Are they using the, the primitive token or are they using the semantic token or are they using the component token? So there are lots of, there's a lot of tiers of knowledge to obtain when you're working with tokens. Right now, we're just trying to get like a, a baseline understanding of how people want to use them. So we're doing um, interviews 
and figuring out what's what the best workflow is for them so that that will drive how the plugin UI works together. Because even though you can do something, knowing how it's actually going to be used can maybe reduce some of the scope even for, for some of the things we have planned, at least for an MVP. Nice. Excited to see where that goes. <laughs> so I think that about wraps it up for the questions and it's time to move on to tooltips. So one big problem that I encountered with my Max native screenshot abilities is that it shows it on screen for like 10 seconds. And usually I can be quick enough to grab that screenshot and then post it to wherever I'm going to post it in that 10 seconds. But a lot of the time it'll just go away and it's not the best user experience. I'm really lazy. I'll just go back and re-screenshot the thing because I don't want to go find wherever it put it on my system. What CleanShot is, is a whole bunch of different tools that make your screenshots feel a lot nicer. So like, for instance, when you take a screenshot, it'll pin that screenshot to the edge of your screen and it'll just stay there forever until you dismiss it or choose to do something with it. So now I can take a screenshot, go type out my pull request description, and then add the image without any fumbling around or try trying to get the timing right. Also has a bunch of other really cool little tiny features, like you can pin a screenshot on the screen and it'll be above all your windows, but it has definitely improved my life. It's a paid app, but I've gained a lot of value out of it. So I do highly recommend it. Nice, nice. Yeah, I'll go next. So my tooltip for this week, or the, the first one, is this site called Listen Notes. It's a search engine for podcasts. So if you want to find anything, if it's mentioned in the podcast text, if it's in the title, if it's a person, whatever, this is a great way to find, to search across all these index podcasts and find a particular episode that's talking about a very particular thing. It's pretty amazing. I was looking for some like very niche elixir stuff and I was able to find like a bunch of different episodes across a bunch of different podcasts that had that like exact topic, which is pretty cool. Uh, that seems like a super useful tool. Like I could see students really benefiting from this, like being able to search across all that data that probably previously wasn't searchable. Yeah, it's really awesome. We're on there too. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Who'd have thunk? So, Kelly, I think this is one's yours. React yes, Flow. Yes, I love React Flow. I don't really understand how it works. It's just <laughs> magical. Um, seeing all the sliders and like just updating things, and you can put in all kinds of data, the, the examples, the customizations are super cool and you can pretty much customize it the way like for it to be however you want to use it. And so I thought this was a really great way eventually to show how data flows through like a pipeline or a repo and just get a sense of the complexities around all these different data sources. That's funny that you uh, brought this one up because Adam was on last week and oh. he, he, he showed off his own React graphing library <laughs> that had lots of the same features. That's funny. I think it was a different one, though. That's funny. Well, we both work on very similar projects, so there's a lot of overlap <laughs> yeah. with like, hey, did you check this tool out and how can we use it for our projects? We, we keep saying that we should just call it JSONRS because that's what we... <laughs> That's what we're doing. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see how the design tokens look like visualized like this. Mm -hmm. It's a very pretty way to visualize it. I can see all the kind of dependencies and references and aliases and stuff like that showing in a graph-like interface. Mm -hmm. So next up, it looks like we have Repolit. Yeah, so this one's mine. So I, like, part of, like, my day go and answer people's questions about style dictionary. And a lot of times, like I'll want to like make like a code example for them. Like, how do I do this very specific thing? And there are multiple ways to do it, but here's a way I would do it. And I never really found a great way to write that code and post it for the person. Like I've written gists sometimes, but you can't really execute them and it's very static. So I've done that and be like, this code probably works. I didn't test it, but something around there, I can create a new GitHub repository. It seems a bit like 
heavy-handed for just building like a quick example. Also, similarly, like, you'd still need to pull it down and run it and stuff like that. And one of the things with like Style Dictionary, like it, it's generating files. And so, for an example, people would want to see the files that it's generating. So a lot of like online code editors, like CodePen or Code Sandbox, you, you can't like. Some of them you can generate files in like an NPM script. Some of them you can't. And even if you can generate it, they might not show in the file explorer. And so I like asked a question to, we have like a design technologist Slack channel at Amazon. And I post a question like, I need to be able to do this specific thing. And someone showed me Repl.it and it does exactly that. Like you can run, you know, NPM scripts or bash scripts, like CLI commands, and they can generate files and they'll show up in the file explorer and then you can view them. So this is the only online IDE, at least that I found that I know about that allows that to happen. And so like, I just went really deep into this. I was like, yes, this is exactly what I need to be able to write this 20 line demo for someone that I've been spending like six hours on because I've been doing it in like six different online IDEs. So I was just really excited to see this. Yeah. It seems like it could be really useful for you since there's so many different ways to run JavaScript in a little like fiddle like environment on the web. But yeah. Other types of code, not so much. Yeah, yeah. Most of them are geared toward like front-end development. So you're building a web page in some way. And so you can do that super easily. But if you're building like a CLI or a build tool or something that generates stuff that isn't like a web application, you're out of luck. Except if you use Replit, apparently. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's been really exciting to see them add features. And I see their, the founder posts about like kids in India who are not going to school because they're having too much fun on Revolut. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just so easy to code that they're not even wanting to go to school anymore. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And like just the, like the tools they have for like starting with a GitHub repository and like starting a project on it and like forking stuff. I still haven't gotten that deep into it, but like all of the tools, I'm, I think it's a great kind of online ID platform for sure. Really good for pairing too, if you're into that thing. It's good for teaching. My girlfriend's sister was learning C++ and I helped her learn it with Replit. Wow. That's awesome. It's really cool. You can just be like, oh, you have a bug? Send me a link. I'll see what I, I can figure out for you. <laughs> yeah. There's a sort of like niche subject that I've been getting into a lot these days. And it starts with this notion of building applications that are offline first, uh, so local first. It's a really hard thing to do because if it's local first and you make a change and someone makes a change somewhere else, you have to figure out how to resolve that. And that's why Git is great because it helps us do a lot of those things. But if you're building software that you don't want people to have to manage a merge conflict and you need to figure out how to do that for them, it's hard. It's a super hard problem. One of the, the ways to solve this is there's a specific data structure called CRDTs. Are there, I don't remember what they stand for. <laughs> conflict something, data types or whatever. Anyway, yeah, conflict-free replicated data type. There you go. Great. The this There's this library that was developed by some folks at this research lab called Ink and Switch, which I think I've mentioned previously in another episode. But it helps you do CRDTs or, and helps you essentially gives you a framework for building applications that are local first, that multiple people can make changes at one time, or you can have delayed synchronized changes. Really, really interesting library. There's a lot of really good research behind it too. So if you're interested in that thing and trying to figure out how to build a real-time app, then I definitely recommend checking it out. Yeah, this is a problem engineers at Descript are currently solving, trying to get it to be collaborative. And just the amount of thinking that has to go into that is crazy. Because like, you don't want people resolving merge conflicts on their video files in our editor. Like, <laughs> need to come up with something better than that. Uh-oh, Kelly actually stole my last one. I, I was oh, going to do this one. No, you can... You can... <laughs> oh, no, you can do it. I, I didn't read up on, on it enough. So you're the, the reigning expert. Yeah, so it's domevents.dev. And I'm a sucker for educational tools. When I first saw this, I was like, wow, this is a really fun page. Like the colors are really vibrant. And I sort of start clicking around. And as someone who doesn't have classical training for computer science, I really loved that I could 
play around, check some boxes and have it play. And then it shows you what is happening, what events are being triggered as in the DOM. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. And maybe if I had had this in school, I would have been more interested (laughs) in what all this was, but I guess better late than never. And so I love all the, the, the information around what each thing is and what everything means. It also teaches you some terminology as well. And it's just, it was just something fun to tinker around with learn a little bit more about what's happening behind the scenes because you know, dev tools can be a little scary sometimes. And this kind of makes it more explicit and visual. That's really cool. It kind of reminds me of what's the like, like child programming language scratch or something like just like the visuals and what it's doing kind of reminds me of that where you can graphically build like what happens when this event does this and play it yeah. looks really cool. Yeah, they did a really good job of making this pretty and approachable. I think I saw some tweets from the developer that this is actually scripted After Effects somehow. (laughs) Yeah, we're seeing After Effects on this page be scripted, yeah. That's crazy. Which you can apparently do with JavaScript pretty easily, so take that into your design system. (laughs) We got one last one, and it's about some stinky Japanese food. Well, if anybody doesn't know, natto is fermented soybeans on top of rice. It, it looks like snot. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know about the food, but this is a really interesting library, and it ties into, or it's similar to what Kelly was showing earlier, the Rack Flow thing. Natto.dev is this canvas that you can put these little elements in, and they can have text or they can run code, and you can link them together to do really interesting things. So Andrew, click on the render React example. I feel like that's a good, a good example. So yeah, you can just give it some text and, and feed it through, and it'll render a React component. It's just a really interesting way to play with code and explore things and like pretty visually see what you're doing. But it is almost that React flow like feel see so all these nodes are interconnected and have these rich relationships i really like visual programming environments just to break things down and make it more discoverable and explorable and, and watching the developer build this out his name's paul shen is just been a real joy this is one of the things that i always look for on my twitter feed it's just like an update on this project because it's so fun so I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode of DevTools FN. Thanks, Danny and Kelly, for coming on. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And that's it. Make sure to follow us on wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to us on YouTube. Thank you and goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.